If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. I'm Rob Attar, the magazine's editor. In today's episode, we're going to be broadcasting one of the talks from our 2019 Winchester History Weekend. The speaker was the historian Nicola Tallis, who last year published a new biography of Margaret Beaufort, entitled Uncrowned Queen. In her talk, Nicola explores the fascinating life of a woman who played a pivotal role in the Wars of the Roses and early Tudor eras. 
Hello, well, good afternoon. Thank you so much for such a lovely warm welcome and for coming along and giving up your Sunday to come and hear me speak about Margaret Beaufort. I always feel like I get the warmest of welcomes in Winchester and it just feels so like home for me. And I was saying to Ellie just before I came on, it feels a bit surreal actually speaking in this room because the last time I was in here, just over two weeks ago, I was fully dressed in my graduation robes, ready to graduate from the cathedral um, because I, very great relief, um, I completed my PhD here in January. So, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's really, really kind. Um, but enough about that. Are you ready to hear a truly thrilling tale about an extraordinary Tudor lady? Yes, amazing. <laughs> You've come to the right place. <laughs> so, Henry VII's devout and rather awesome mother was the description of Margaret Beaufort offered by a 1970s biographer of the Tudor King. And although both parts of that statement are completely 100% accurate, they don't do full justice to the woman who forms the subject of my book. And that's something that I really want to show you today. I want to show you a different side of Margaret Beaufort, hopefully as you've never seen her before. And I think though the one thing that this, this statement does show is the way that Margaret has been portrayed over the years. Um, basically as a religious fanatic who was obsessively ambitious on her son's behalf and dominated his court. I think this is really the image that's often conjured up when the name Margaret Beaufort is mentioned. But Margaret's own story and her true character as a living, breathing woman are a far cry from such two-dimensional representations. My first proper introduction to Margaret came back in 2013 when I began my PhD here in Winchester and I was examining the jewellery collections of the late medieval and early Tudor queens. And although Margaret didn't form a direct part of my research, I did get to have a quick look at her accounts and I was really struck uh, by how different the Margaret, who was beginning to emerge from the pages of archival material, was from the traditional figure. Her image has been through some revisions over the years since her death, but the popular one has rarely been accurate. And what's more, in spite of the impact that Margaret made on English history, she's often been little more than a footnote, overlooked and ignored. In recent years, though, this has begun to change. Hopefully, this will continue to change. And she is now starting to feature more prominently in the narratives that she helped to shape. And indeed, actually, if you look at it closely, you will see that Margaret's life reads like an episode of a modern-day soap opera. And it's that that I'm going to give you just a little teaser of today. Um, I have to say, actually, as well, that some of you hopefully will have noticed that we've got some early copies of the book on sale today. It doesn't actually hit the bookshops until this coming Thursday. So 
Uh, yeah, I know you're very privileged getting the opportunity to, <laughs> to purchase it early. So, you know, if you want to get ahead of the game, just saying today would be a good day to do so. <laughs> so Margaret's story is one of tragic lows and unprecedented highs. It's the tale of war and peace told through the eyes of an extraordinary woman who became one of the most influential personalities of the late 15th century. Though in material terms, she was privileged and never went without, emotionally, she suffered heartache and loss, endured struggles and faced many perils. Likewise, she created a lasting legacy as an individual who ought to be remembered in her own right, thereby achieving more than she could ever have anticipated. Margaret's is therefore, as I hope to show you, a life to be celebrated. It's the life of a woman who became a queen in all but name. Surrounded by a moat amid fragrant gardens in the heart of the pretty Bedfordshire village of Bletsoe, the castle was in reality more of a fortified manor house than a defensive structure. Unfortunately, it no longer stands, which is why I, was um, I had to revert to taking a photograph of the village sign instead. <laughs> but it was here that Margaret Beaufort was born on the 31st of May, 1443, the daughter of John Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, and his wife, Margaret Beecham, who you can see here from their tomb effigy in Wimborne Minster, which was actually created on Margaret's orders. John Beaufort was no ordinary duke, though, because as the grandson of John of Gaunt, who was himself the third son of Edward III, he, and thus also Margaret, had royal blood in their veins. Tragically, Margaret never knew her father because she was just a few days shy of her first birthday when John Beaufort died, possibly at his own hand, as a result of a dismal French military campaign that had ended in his disgrace. As his only legitimate child, Margaret became a wealthy heiress, and this really signalled the beginning of a period of her life when she was used as a pawn in the power struggles of ambitious men. Just days after her father's death, Margaret became the ward of Henry VI's great favourite, William de la Pole, who was the Earl and then Duke of Suffolk. And she was betrothed to his son. In 1450, at the age of just six, the children underwent some kind of marriage ceremony of words only. But three years later, this was dissolved. Instead, Henry VI, who was also Margaret's kinsman, had another husband in mind for her, his half-brother, Edmund Tudor. And this comes from Edmund's tomb effigy in St. David's Cathedral. The marriage of Margaret and Edmund Tudor didn't take place immediately. And it wasn't until some time shortly after Margaret's 12th birthday on the 31st of May, 1455, which was also um, just nine days after the Battle of St Albans that marked the first battle of the Wars of the Roses, that Margaret and Edmund were married. 
And I think it's just a really good moment to pause and reflect on the fact that Margaret wasn't even a teenager at this point, but her marriage made her Countess of Richmond. And it was a title that she continued to use even after Edmund's death. But more significantly, the results of the marriage would determine the entire course of the rest of her life. The conclusion of Margaret's marriage also brought her one step closer to Henry VI, who was, as I mentioned, already her kinsman by blood. But now Henry also became Margaret's brother-in-law. And this really meant that Margaret, even though she was still a child at this point, was now drawn even more into the brewing conflict in England and thus the fate of the Royal House of Lancaster, of which she was a member. She would become directly involved in and witness firsthand the political turmoil that lay in store. In spite of her adolescence, from the start, Edmund Tudor fully intended that Margaret ought to become his wife in the fullest sense of the word. And chief among her duties was the consummation of her marriage, which took place either immediately or soon after the couple's marriage. Now, um, this wasn't actually particularly unusual for this time because the church decreed that 12 was the legal age at which a girl could fully cohabit with her husband, whilst 14 was prescribed for boys. But in spite of this, many of Margaret's contemporaries did still consider this to be painfully young. And not always, but often, couples did cho choose to wait. But so eager was Edmund to secure an interest in Margaret's inheritance through consummation and the production of an heir, that this wasn't an option. So despite being in his mid-twenties and more than a decade older than his bride, he wasted no time in making Margaret his wife in the fullest sense of the word. The trauma that Edmund's decision later caused would manifest itself in the emotional scars and possible physical ones too that Margaret was left with. Within a matter of months of their marriage, the couple had travelled to Pembrokeshire, where they'd taken up residence in the luxurious palace of Lamphy, which was then a regal bishop's palace. As you can see, it's sadly now in ruins, but enough survives to show us that it really would once have been a very large, very palatial residence. In the summer of 1456, Margaret had just passed her 13th birthday and she would have now become aware that she was pregnant with her first child. However, she was thrown into a perilous situation when just months later, on the 1st of November, her husband Edmund died of the plague. Edmund's death left his teenage wife alone and vulnerable and the timing could hardly have been worse. Margaret was completely consumed with fear and in later years, her friend and confessor, Bishop Fisher, would explain to her son that while your mother carried you in the womb, you narrowly avoided the plague of which your illustrious father died, which could so easily have killed an unborn child. It was against a backdrop of fear from disease and political unrest 
that Margaret was forced to consider her future and quickly. Her relationship with her brother-in-law, Jasper Tudor, had always been very amicable and it was to Jasper that Margaret now turned to for support. He was an ideal choice of protector for Margaret and he didn't hesitate to come to her aid, conducting her to his stronghold of Pembroke Castle, which was just a little over two miles away from Lamphy. It was here at Pembroke that on the 28th of January, 1457, 13-year-old Margaret gave birth to a son. It had been an extremely difficult experience for her. And according to Bishop Fisher, it seemed a miracle that at that age and of so little a personage, anyone should have been born at all. In a proud declaration of her own heritage and loyalty to the royal house into which she had been born, the baby was christened Henry in honour of Margaret's kinsman, who was the baby's uncle and also probable godfather. Margaret now had a new and important role to play, that of a mother. Yet this didn't faze her, for from the moment of Henry's birth, an extraordinary bond was forged between mother and son. It was one that would endure for the rest of their lives, perhaps later heightened by the knowledge that Henry was to be Margaret's only child, whether through choice or circumstance. There is a possibility that the physical and psychological trauma of her son's birth caused Margaret permanent damage. It's often been said that the harm inflicted as a result of childbirth rendered her physically incapable of bearing another child. And certainly we know that despite two further marriages, um, she's, she isn't known to have become pregnant again and she certainly never produced any more children. More than 500 years later, it's impossible to know what the true physical implications of Henry's birth were if indeed there were any. But what we can say with certain with certainty is that the experience definitely left its mark on her psychologically. In years to come, Margaret would urge her son not to allow her granddaughter and namesake to travel to Scotland for her marriage to James IV too early, in case in his haste to consummate their union, he might injure her and endanger her health. With this in mind, it's hardly surprising that childbirth left Margaret emotionally scarred. So much so that it's possible that she made a conscious decision not to become pregnant again. And this is my time to say, if you want to know more about my theory, then you'll have to read the book. I had to get it in there somewhere. So shortly after Henry's birth, Margaret made the decision to remarry. But she was determined that her third husband should be someone of her own choosing who would be prepared not only to consider her own interests, but also those of her infant son. This time, though she was only 13 still, Margaret took responsibility for shaping her own future. It's important to point out, actually, that this image that we have of Margaret, this is the only image that we have of a younger 
more youthful Margaret. So you'll see it's a very far cry away from, um, from the very pious images that we traditionally associate with her. This one is actually part of a stained glass window that once was in Wimborne Minster, where Margaret's parents are buried, and is now in a church in Cambridgeshire. On the 3rd of January, 1458, almost a year after Henry's birth, Margaret was married to Henry Stafford, the second son of the Duke of Buckingham, almost certainly leaving her son in the custody of Jasper Tudor at Pembroke Castle. The newlyweds set up or took up residence at Bourne Castle in Lincolnshire, which formed a part of Margaret's inheritance. It's not there any longer, sadly. Um, on a personal level, this marriage does seem to have been a genuinely very happy one. I think it's certainly the most successful of Margaret's marriages in personal terms. And we get an insight into this from the fact that the couple would regularly celebrate their wedding anniversary. Uh, quite often they sent to London for luxury items for um, a sumptuous meal, such as salmon or conger eel on occasion. By now, the Wars of the Roses were well and truly underway and uncertainty raged throughout the land. In March 1461, Margaret's kinsman, Henry VI, was deposed and in his place, Edward of March, who was like Henry, a descendant of Edward III, was declared King Edward IV following a victory at Mortimer's Cross that was consolidated by a further victory at Towton at the end of the month. This really signified the beginning of a period of Margaret's life when she was forced to ingratiate herself with her enemies and she would do so admirably. Nevertheless, the wars directly impacted not only on her life, but also of those close to her. Margaret's husband Stafford had fought for Henry VI at Towton but he was pardoned by the new king. But not everyone was so fortunate. And um, following Towton, Jasper Tudor was forced to flee. And when Edward IV's supporter, William Herbert, took control of Pembroke Castle, he discovered Margaret's four-year-old son, Henry Tudor, inside. Soon after, Henry officially became Herbert's ward and he went to live at Raglan Castle, in Wales with his guardian and his family. Dismayed she may have been by the way in which events had transpired, but Margaret nevertheless managed to retain contact with her son. And we know that she visited him on at least one occasion at Raglan, staying there for a week in 1467. Following Towton though, Margaret and her husband did their best to avoid the conflict. In 1468, they moved to Woking, which was a former Beaufort property that quickly became Margaret's favourite home and would remain so for many years. Unfortunately, you can't really get a good sense of that from, <laughs> from the, the remaining brickwork, but I can assure you <laughs> that the archival evidence paints a very different picture. And we do know that whilst she was living at Woking, she was living a life of luxury. She particularly enjoyed sports such as hunting and hawking. And she and her husband even hosted a visit from the king here. 
Margaret was also very fond of entertainment. She loved cards. And in later life, she even once sent a man to Buckton to deputise for her on a pilgrimage while she played. So <laughs> that's a, a bit of a different image from the one that we uh, are very familiar with. She also really enjoyed chess and gambling, and she was known to place bets on the results of games of chess as well. So she really was, you know, uh, she wasn't quite this dour woman that we've sort of been led to believe up until this point. In 1469, Henry Tudor's guardian, William Herbert, was killed in the aftermath of the Battle of Edgecote, a battle at which Henry had been present. And we can get a real sense of Margaret's panic from her husband's accounts at this time, which still survive in Westminster Abbey. And for me, this was a real tangible, quite, uh, yeah, quite sad moment, actually, when I was holding these accounts. And you can see all these payments where she's clearly worried stiff about what's happened to her son. And she and Stafford were sending out numerous messages um, continually to try and find out what had happened to Henry. And they must have been extremely relieved when word arrived that Henry was safe and had been delivered into the hands of Herbert's widow. And it was now that Henry Stafford, who was clearly intent on keeping the poor boy entertained after all that he'd been through, paid for some arrows for his disports. Yeah, quite a touching uh, insight, I think. <laughs> The following year, mother and son were granted a short opportunity to spend time together when Henry VI was briefly restored to the throne. But everything changed in 1471. In April and May, Edward IV won two decisive victories at Barnet and Tewkesbury, both of which were to have dire consequences for Margaret. Her husband, Stafford, who'd fought for Edward this time at um, Barnet, he was very badly injured. And following Tewkesbury, Henry and Jasper Tudor fled abroad. Some sources say, and I believe them, that this was at Margaret's urging. Though they were aiming for France, they landed in Brittany, where they became the hostages of Duke Francis II. Back home, on the 21st of May, Henry VI was murdered in the Tower of London. And as his son and heir had been killed at Tewkesbury, this effectively wiped out all of the Lancastrian male figureheads. As if the death of her kinsman and the exile of her son weren't enough for Margaret to cope with, on the 4th of October, her husband Stafford died possibly as a result of the injuries inflicted at Barnet. Less than a year after his death, in early June 1472, Margaret married for the fourth time. Though she wasn't obliged to remarry, she recognised uh, recognised that she was in a very precarious situation. With no protector, her family allegiances and her son's exile made them both very vulnerable. This time, it was important that she should choose a husband who had strong links to the House of York, coupled with the ability to use these to Margaret and her son Henry's advantage. 
Her choice was Thomas Stanley. Unfortunately, we don't have any pictures of him, but he was a member of Edward IV's household. His presence was often required at court, and as the 1470s progressed, so too did Margaret become an increasingly frequent presence there. Gradually, we see her beginning to take a more active role in court ceremonial as the king began to trust her more and more. And she was given a role at the, re the reburial of Edward IV's father in 1476. And she was also entrusted with carrying one of the king's daughters, Princess Bridget, to her christening in 1480. Meanwhile, her son remained in exile but Margaret did make attempts to secure his return home. She came close to effecting a reconciliation, so close that Edward IV went as far as to draft a pardon for Henry. But her hopes were cruelly thwarted when Edward died unexpectedly in April 1483, throwing Henry's future into uncertainty. Within a matter of weeks, Edward's own son had been deposed and his brother declared Richard III in his stead. Edward's two sons, the princes in the tower, as they're popularly remembered by history, were never seen again. And that's all I'm going to say about that point for now. <laughs> this is not the time or the place. <laughs> uh, but what I will say is the onset of Richard's reign and the disappearance of the princes prompted a dramatic change in Margaret's mindset. It is clear that like many of her contemporaries, she believed the princes to be dead. And it was this that led her to recognise a dramatic new ambition for her son. Her plan was to overthrow Richard III and for Henry to bear the crown once worn by his Lancastrian forebears and become King of England. Henry's Lancastrian blood alone was not enough to stake a claim to the throne. And having spent most of his life in exile, Henry was a completely unknown entity in England. And Margaret fully recognised this. He needed something or someone to strengthen his claim. And Margaret did not have far to look. Elizabeth of York, the eldest of Edward IV's daughters, was beautiful, charming and intelligent. And what was more, following her brother's disappearance, many considered her to be the true heir to the throne. And it was to Elizabeth that Margaret planned to marry her son. In order to put her plan into effect, Margaret began conspiring with Elizabeth's mother, Elizabeth Woodville, who was in sanctuary in Westminster Abbey, and then with the Duke of Buckingham, who'd become disaffected from Richard. Sending word to her son in Brittany, at his mother's bidding and with the support of Francis II, Henry began preparing an invasion fleet. But it was all in vain. The plot, known as the Buckingham Rebellion, all went badly wrong. Buckingham was executed and Henry, though he'd set sail from Brittany, was forced to turn back. But for Margaret, there was nowhere to go. Having committed high treason, she now awaited the consequences of her plotting. When the punishment came, 
it was remarkably lenient. Though in the eyes of the law, Margaret had committed the most heinous of crimes by conspiring against the king, it was Richard's own vulnerability that saved her because he couldn't afford to risk alienating Lord Stanley by ordering the execution of his wife. You know, quite handy that. So Margaret was spared the death penalty, but that didn't mean that she would go unpunished. And in many respects, I think that the punishment was probably worse than death for Margaret because all of her lands were taken from her. Uh, this was really, really important to Margaret. She, she had great, uh, she just loved looking after her lands and she took a great interest and was very active in looking after them. Um, she quite often went to visit them. So this would have come as a huge blow to her. And she was also placed in house imprisonment under the custodianship of her husband. But this didn't deter Margaret from plotting because the Buckingham Rebellion had shown that there were those in the realm who were prepared to take up arms against Richard. Though unsuccessful, Margaret was not prepared to give up this time. In her eyes, it was still all to play for. By the summer of 1485, Henry was ready to invade once more. And on the 7th of August, he landed at Milford Haven. On the 22nd, he confronted Richard's forces at Bosworth in Leicestershire. And though the odds had been very much stacked in Richard's favour, um, he was by far the most experienced in terms of military ability. Henry had never fought a battle before. Richard's forces were defeated and he was killed. Suddenly, the future that neither Margaret or her son had envisaged as a possibility until 1483 had transpired into a reality. Her son has succeeded in winning the crown and was now King Henry VII of England. A contemporary chronicler posed an interesting question, which I really feel um, reflected, would have reflected Margaret's own thoughts on the outcome of the battle. Should one describe this as fortune? Surely it was God's judgment. At the time of Bosworth though, neither Margaret nor any other could have been sure that Henry, who was after all a man much changed from the 14 year old boy who'd fled into exile, would be successful as king or even keep hold of his throne. In the same manner as she had striven for his rise, now Margaret would do her utmost to help her son to establish his own bloodline. In so doing, she would pave the way for her own power. Many members of Margaret's family were rewarded for, um, for their support of Henry following his accession, but the best rewards were saved for his mother. Margaret was declared a femme sole by parliament or a sole person, which gave her full and sole control over her estates, which, quite importantly for her, meant that she now had the power to act independently of her husband. And it's important to highlight that this, this move, it wasn't only bold, it was completely unprecedented because femme sole status was usually only found in unmarried women which really serves to underline the level of power that Henry was prepared to grant his mother 
all as a result of his newly acquired kingship. Interestingly, uh, later on, Margaret also took a vow of chastity, signifying independence from her husband in another way. She was, Margaret was eager to establish herself now as the leading lady of the realm. And it was with this in mind that she took the title of My Lady the King's Mother. Her legal independence really signified a turning point in her life. And from this moment, she took control not only of her own life, but also of her own identity. It was with this in mind that she later adopted the signature Margaret R, which can be seen in her surviving letters. This one comes from a page in her account books. She signed every single page, Margaret R. So this was a woman who knew where her money was going down to the last penny. Uh, there's been a lot of debate over whether the R signified Richmond, in keeping with her second husband's title, or whether it was R for Regina. In my mind, it's very clear that it was for Regina, because I think this was a very deliberate attempt by Margaret to emphasise her royal status and authority. She was also particularly conscious of the way in which clothes and jewels could be used to create a, an impression of dazzling magnificence. And this is something that we don't get from her portraits at all. Her clothes were purchased with great regularity and they were always extremely lavish. Black was evidently her favoured colour, as you can see here. Um, and given that the dye for this was extremely expensive, it was a further indication of her immense wealth. But she didn't always wear black. You know, she had, she had dresses made of gold tissue and purple as well. So, you know, she bought those out on occasion too. And we see in her accounts other items such as slippers, gloves, sleeves, um, oh, all sorts of spectacles, which were used increasingly later in her life, and they were always fashioned from gold. And to me, this really paints a picture of a woman who cared greatly about her appearance and wasn't always on her knees in prayer. Although Margaret's surviving portraits do show her favour for black, as I say, they don't reflect her passion for fine clothes and jewels, and neither do they reflect the richness of her character. I think really it's these images that are in part responsible for obscuring the far more colourful evidence of a woman who was certainly pious, but was also able to combine this with her ability to have a good time. And as I mentioned before, she did love to be entertained. And among her accounts, payments can be found for some Spaniards who danced the Morris. A, I know. <laughs> a child who played a song for her and her two fools. Um, and these are quite interesting. One of her fools was called Skip. And Margaret was really fond of him. We can see that she paid for his, uh, she paid for his clothes and his high-heeled shoes and she would always pay for these clothes to be washed. And sadly, when Skip died, he was later replaced by another fool known as Reginald the Idiot. <laughs> I mean, make of that what you will. <laughs> At the beginning of 1486, Margaret's son married Elizabeth of York, and in September, 
Margaret, I'm sorry, Elizabeth gave son, birth to a son, Arthur, here in Winchester. It was a hugely triumphant moment for Margaret, who was now the proud grandmother of the first Tudor heir. Three years later, on the 28th of November, Margaret was overjoyed when the Queen was safely delivered of a princess. On this occasion, there was an added reason to be joyful because the baby was to be named Margaret after my lady, the King's mother. Margaret grew to be extremely fond of her firstborn granddaughter, who was also her godmother, sorry, her goddaughter. She presented Pr Princess Margaret with an elaborate christening gift of a chest of silver and gilt full of gold. The birth of Princess Margaret was followed by that of five other children, including Henry, of course, the future Henry VIII, born in June 1491. And here we can see Henry VII and Elizabeth of York with all of their children. Although sadly, just four of these would survive infancy. Margaret took an interest in all of her grandchildren, of whom she was extremely proud. This is unsurprising given that she was strongly family orientated and in general the royal family were extremely close. Her accounts provide touching glimpses into her relationships with these grandchildren and we can see that on one occasion for example she made gifts of brooches from a Stanford goldsmith to Princess Margaret and Prince Henry whilst on another occasion clothes were purchased for Henry and Arthur. For the first decade of Henry VII's reign, Margaret was an almost constant presence at court. Apartments were set aside in each of the royal palaces for her use, and they were always close to those of the king. Sometimes they even had an interlinking chamber between the two. She was also always at the forefront of court ceremonial and often wore her coronet on public occasions, reportedly walking just half a pace behind the Queen. No longer would Margaret remain in the shadows. She wanted Henry's subjects to see and recognise her for who she was, the noble Princess Margaret. Such was the demeanour of the woman who behaved as though she were an uncrowned queen. But Margaret was also able to use her wealth and position to do much good to those who were less fortunate. And amongst other things, she founded almshouses, she gave clothes and money to the poor, and on one occasion, she even paid the debts of a priest who was in jail. Don't ask me what he did, I don't know. <laughs> but she's also, uh, she's also very well known for the founding of two Cambridge colleges. Um, scholarship had always been a huge passion of hers and her wealth enabled her to indulge this and to use it for the benefit of others. So Christ's was founded in 1505, whilst St John's was founded in 1511, two years after Margaret's death. Both are still fully working, functioning colleges. Margaret also took the opportunity um, to indulge in things that she enjoyed, one of which was reading. She not only patronised the printer William Caxton, but she also patronised several other printers and in total was the dedicatee of 10 books. 
Many of the books she read were admittedly religious texts, but not all of them. And we know that she enjoyed, amongst other things, French romances and Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. So again, we're seeing another side of her here. From 1499 onwards, Margaret began to, to spend an increasing amount of time away from London, taking up residence at her Northamptonshire residence of Collie Weston. Unfortunately, Collie Weston no longer stands, and there's a lot of exciting work going on there at the moment to try and uncover the site of Margaret's lost palace. Um, it hasn't been too successful so far because we don't even know whereabouts in the village it was. Um, but we think probably somewhere around where this field is. Uh, <laughs> um, and here, what we can say is that Margaret was a queen in all but name, a mistress of her own household. Around 200 people were employed here at Collie Weston, so clearly enough to attend to her every need and all of whom wore the blue and silver livery of the Beaufort family, which featured the portcullis from the family crest. You can see this one comes from King's College Chapel in Cambridge. So, surrounded by her presence chamber, her chapel, her library, her jewel house, and her beautiful pleasure gardens, at Collie Weston, Margaret lived a life of luxury on a scale that she had never experienced before. And she was completely beloved by her household. But behind Collie Weston's impressive facade, it had another role to play. It was here that Margaret set up her administrative headquarters as she began serving as the King's unofficial lieutenant in the Midlands. And her authority even stretched into the north too. So she was wielding power on a massive scale here. And it was for this reason that not everything at Collie Weston was built for pleasure. And um, among other things, the, there was a counting house and even a jail. With the support of her own council, Margaret began to settle disputes and administer justice on the king's behalf. She heard numerous depositions here, including one concerning slanders about her son's ancestry emanating from a Colchester tavern. And wait for it, another one against a man who was accused of the baptism of a cat. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Never before had a woman been entrusted with such a role so Margaret really was carving out a new role for herself within the Tudor regime. By the autumn of 1501, Margaret had left Collie Weston behind. She joined her family in London, which was abuzz with preparations for the arrival of the Spanish princess, Catherine of Aragon, who was soon to marry Margaret's eldest grandson, Prince Arthur. When Catherine arrived in the city, she received a welcome fit for a future queen of England, and the splendour of the occasion left observers in awe. On the 14th of November, the youngsters were married in Old St Paul's Cathedral, an occasion on which Margaret wept with joy as she watched the nuptials privately with the king and queen. It was soon her turn to play hostess to the newlyweds, 
And as part of the entertainment, as part of the celebrations, she hosted an entertainment at Cold Harbour, which was her London home. She'd taken great care to prepare for this visit, ordering new ovens and new tiles to be installed, and she'd even commissioned a play especially. For Henry VII and for Margaret as well, was of the utmost importance to the newly established Tudor dynasty. But tragically, it was not destined to last for long. On the 2nd of April 1502, just five months after the wedding, Arthur died, plunging the royal family into mourning. Henry VII now had just one surviving son, but shortly after Arthur's death, the Queen became pregnant. Sadly, she wouldn't survive the consequences. Having given birth not to the hoped-for son, whose arrival would have strengthened the male continuance of the dynasty, but instead to a daughter named Catherine, Elizabeth of York died on the 11th of February, 1503, her 37th birthday. And soon after, the baby princess she'd given birth to followed her mother to the grave. It was a tragic outcome and the culmination of a terrible two years for Margaret's family. Her three surviving grandchildren were now motherless, with only their grieving father and grandmother to turn to for comfort. Margaret was now the closest female relative the royal family had. Just months after the Queen's death, Margaret was back at Collie Weston, preparing for the arrival of her granddaughter, Princess Margaret, who was journeying north that summer to meet her new husband, James IV of Scotland. Margaret was determined to ensure that a high level of ceremony was employed for the visit. And amongst the preparations, she'd ordered new chimneys. Uh, always an important thing to have, you know, don't look a good chimney. And she'd even ordered extra plate to be bought from London. What was to be a truly splendid occasion was also the last time that Margaret would ever see her granddaughter. Within no time at all, she was forced to bid a tender farewell, but she was eager to keep in touch. In September, she arranged for messages to be sent to the new Queen Margaret, and two months later, rewarded a servant who bought messages in return. Margaret's family was now considerably smaller, and what was more, as the early 1500s progressed, the king's health had started to seriously decline. In early 1509, it became clear that Henry's days were numbered because he was suffering from tuberculosis. Margaret's health was also extremely fragile, but this didn't stop her from rushing to be by her son's side. She hurried to Richmond, arranging for her belongings, which crucially included her favourite bed, to follow her. And I think the realisation, this is a really sad moment, because the realisation that her son was going to die before her must have been extremely painful for her to bear. After all, there had been just 13 years between mother and son, and all of Henry's life, Margaret had striven to protect him, supporting him in adversity and later reveling in his glory. On the 21st of April, Henry finally slipped from life into death. 
Margaret was completely devastated. Her teenage grandson, Henry, who was just a couple of months short of his 18th birthday, succeeded his father. On the 11th of June, Henry married his brother's widow, Catherine of Aragon, and 13 days later, the couple were crowned in Westminster Abbey. Though Margaret partook in the traditional coronation banquet in Westminster Hall, she no longer had the energy for such entertainments. Indeed, the coronation turned out to be the last occasion on which she would ever see her grandson. Immediately after, Margaret retired to the abbot's house within Westminster Abbey, um, which stands just behind this front here. And by now she was gravely ill. Uh, some claimed that she had uh, suffered from food poisoning as a result of eating a signet at the coronation banquet. But it's clear that actually she was already deeply unwell and was becoming weaker by the day. On the 28th of June, Henry VIII reached his 18th birthday, but it was clear that Margaret wouldn't live to see him reign. In the same way that she'd organised her life, so too had she long been prepared for her end. Just the following day, she slipped quietly into death at the age of 66. Her friend Bishop Fisher claimed that all of England for her death had cause for weeping. Margaret left instructions for her burial in the magnificent Lady Chapel within Westminster Abbey, which had been begun by her son. And it was here that the Florentine sculptor Pietro Torrigiano created her tomb. The result was stupendous. Her intricately sculpted face was almost certainly modelled on a death mask, her features appearing unmistakably lifelike. Today, the tomb of the uncrowned queen is one of the masterpieces of Westminster Abbey and one of the most splendid examples of a Renaissance monument. It's a memorial that Margaret would have been proud of. Margaret's legacy was both enduring and worthy of celebration. She'd used her wealth and her position to help improve the lives of others, her values being wrought into the stones of the Cambridge colleges of her foundation. Moreover, she'd not only survived all of the obstacles that life had thrown at her and that could easily have left her broken, she had thrived. She left behind her a dynasty that would be the most talked of in British history, whose foundations she had striven to instill, risking her life in the process. Even more significantly, her bloodline endures to this day. For every English monarch since 1509 and every British monarch since 1603, including our present Queen Elizabeth II, has been able to trace their descent from Margaret. It is a fitting and enduring legacy for the woman who had striven so hard to achieve a crown for her family. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That was Nicola Tallis. Uncrowned Queen, the fateful life of Margaret Beaufort, Tudor matriarch, is out now published by Michael O'Mara in the UK. And in the US, it's just about to be published by Basic Books.
And that's all for today. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll return tomorrow when Paul Cartledge will be telling us everything we need to know about the history of ancient Greece. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.